sometimes you just need to touch grass, literally and figuratively. And we recommend you bring books. Tell the bibliologists at Tailored Book Recommendations about what you love and what you don't and what you want to read this summer on your outdoor adventures. You can get your recommendations via email or receive hardcovers in the mail. And TBR has plans for every budget. This summer, touch grass and bring books. You pack the bags, we pick the books. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. It only takes a few minutes. That's mytbr.co. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 267, and today we are talking about books being released on July 7th, 2020, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Kelly Jensen, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello! Hello! It is July. It's July. (laughs) Oh, it's amazing. So, the book's coming out today. (laughs) There are so many, because back at the beginning of the quarantine and the pandemic, publishers started being like, well, we should push the books off for a couple months. And so they started all landing on July 7th. But then after Mm -hmm. like a few weeks, they were like, this isn't going away. So you and I have the August 4th show where there are like a thousand books coming out. Yep. Like like that I know of, you know, I mean, obviously lots more books come out every every Tuesday that I don't know about. But I mean, that's like the new dump site for all pushed releases. So Mm -hmm. we got a little bit to choose from today. They're pretty amazing. But next month, it's like, how are we even going to pick? How? Right. Yeah, there are so many books. So many books. We're going to talk about some today. Yes. Do you have anything exciting you want to share before we get started? Uh, no. Should I have something exciting to share? No, no, I just like to check. You know, like, <laughs> give you a chance to be like, yeah, I bedazzled my face or something. You know, like, if you got anything. No. <laughs> it's been, like, it's just been steady, which is fine. That's really it. We are just getting by best we can. How about you? The same. I saw this meme that kind of summed up how I feel right now, uh, where it's a picture of a calendar, and for the days of the week, the beginning of each day has been crossed off, so it just says day, 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 Mm -hmm. and I was like, yeah, that's how I feel right now. Yep. I'm excited because it's been, it has been raining here for two days after not having rain for like 12 weeks, but I was telling Kelly before we started recording that it's been raining for like two straight days, and now our basement is flooded. It's like, I could have used like somewhere in between there, would have been nice, (laughs) you know, but. We needed the rain, so that's good. That's the weather update for this week. (laughs) It's it's just hot here, hot and sunny, and that's it. I did finally, like, I went back and forth and back and forth about going and getting a haircut because I was so over my hair. Like, my hair is very, very long. And the thing is, I have a lot of hair, and... I always say that and stylists are always like, well, your hair is very fine. And then they start working on it and they're like, oh, you do have a lot of hair. <laughs> and so um, finally I went and chopped it off this week and was there for three and a half hours. I was the only person in the salon and it was like, I forgot how great that was. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it felt it felt safe because, again, there were only two of us and we had masks on the whole time. But I was like. Cutting off like 10 inches of hair was a game changer. (laughs) 
It's true. I had a similar experience. My friend does my hair and we were in the salon alone and I was like, I need something. I need a haircut. And, and it was great. I got to see firsthand how people are not paying attention to signs or mm. rules, you know, just watch people walk up to the door that says, you know, exit only now and appointment only. I just kept like pulling on the door and like knocking oh. on the door and like people like coming in the back door without masks on, without appointments. And it was just, I was like, oh, dear, <laughs> we're oh. doomed. <laughs> it was pretty alarming. But, you know, hey, we're trying. Everybody's trying. So, yeah. And you know what? If you keep saying that, it makes it a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. That's I guess that's all I can say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's all I got. I'm not going to, you know, get involved in talking about doom and gloom, which I could. <laughs> so I'm just I mean, I have some in my books, which is exciting. Uh, first, we're going to yeah. hear from a sponsor, though. Sometimes you just need to touch grass, literally and figuratively, and we recommend you bring books. Tell the bibliologists set tailored book recommendations about what you love and what you don't and what you want to read this summer on your outdoor adventures. You can get your recommendations via email or receive hardcovers in the mail, and TBR has plans for every budget. This summer, touch grass and bring books. You pack the bags, we pick the books. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. It only takes a few minutes. That's mytbr.co. Okay, so my first book is one of those nonfiction reads that I could talk about for hours and hours and hours because I kept being like, hey, did you know? Hey, did you know? Hey, did you know? To my boyfriend. And he's like, I did not know. I did not know. I did not know. <laughs> so before I start talking about my first pick, which is The Cold Vanish, Seeking the Missing in North America's Wildlands by John mm. Billman. I just want to give like a general heads up that this is a book about missing people uh, who you know have disappeared. So if you have suffered the loss of someone or someone is missing in your life, um, you might want to skip this segment because it is a complete discussion about like when people go missing. So that said, I'm going to start talking about this book because it was amazing and I learned so much. Billman decided to learn about people who have gone missing in national parks, like in, in North America, like in the woods, like when they go hiking or they go on a bike ride or, you know, they've been camping. And the thing that is alarming off the bat is that no one knows how many people have disappeared in national parks because no one's really keeping score because the federal government thinks it's the state's job to keep track of how many people. And the state thinks it's the park's job to keep track of how many people are missing. And it's just such a common occurrence, like you would not believe, that no one has an actual number. And Billman met a guy who wrote a book about people who go missing in parks, and he's done a pretty great job of giving a somewhat accurate figure, Billman believes. However, this guy also thinks that people going missing is because of UFOs and Bigfoot and stuff like that. So, you know, you have to take it with a grain of salt. So, I mean, we can't prove that those things don't exist, but, you know, generally they're not believed to be real. So he talks all about, like, different kinds of cases, you know, like people who just, who just like vanish without a trace, you know, and sometimes these are like if a person is found later, usually they're not found alive. If a person is found later, it's because like they slipped down into this like crack in the earth or, you know, they fell, you know, off a cliff or they fell in a river. Like I said, this is very morbid, but you know, this is what we're talking about. Or even even worse, like they're found like in someone's backyard later. Or, like, someone confesses to, like, kidnapping them off a road. And he's trying to learn, like, all about these cases. 
And he focuses specifically on this one case of a young man who was biking and his bike was found parked by the side of this forest near a river. There was no sign of him, no sign of anything, no clues, nothing. And so he follows this young man's father, uh, Randy Scott, around as he goes looking for him. Randy Scott, they, his family lived in California. His son was in his early 20s. They were very outdoorsy. Uh, Randy Scott is very well off, so he can afford to spend all this time. He searches the woods and the rivers and everything for his son himself. And he, you would think like he's generally, generally upbeat. You know, he's very, like he never says like he thinks something has happened to him. He always says like when we find him. And, you know, Billman talks about how physiologically they have shown that having someone missing and not knowing what happened to them is the hardest thing on a human body of anything that happened. Like not saying like not just counting other traumas or anything just like that, just like physically they can show that not knowing what happened to someone you love takes a toll on your body harder than anything else that happens in, the, in your life. And it's, it's heartbreaking. And so he talks about like, Meeting with people who have lost people. A lot of the people that he meets who are now on search and rescue teams started doing it when they lost someone that they loved, like someone disappeared and they didn't know what happened to them. A lot of times these cases are not resolved. Like there's this one guy who was walking back from like the gift shop to look at this rock like half a mile away while his wife was doing something and never came back and they don't know what happened. Like they can't find, like what happened to him? You know, there's all these like unresolved cases. It's interesting to know that a large number of people who are responsible for looking for you in the woods also believe in Bigfoot. Uh, he met a, a great number of people who think that Bigfoot exists. And I guess, like, if you met a large number of dentists who believe in Bigfoot, that would be kind of strange. But since these people spend a lot of time walking through the woods, it seems only natural that maybe they believe in Bigfoot. But some of them believe in UFOs. Some of them believe there are, like, wormholes in these forests because forests are mystical magical places and like people fell through them it's pretty amazing he also spent some time talking with a guy who handles canine dogs and search and rescue dogs this guy that he spends time with uh, owns bloodhounds which are historically known for tracking people they're cute like he talks like he tells cute stories about the dogs but like the dogs are trained to find you know both the living and the dead they have like two modes that they can switch back and forth from like using different commands like you know look for someone alive or look for someone who's dead i was sad to find out that bloodhounds that are trained to find people are not given any treats because it can be used later in court that if a bloodhound you know does something good and it's given a treat it will do that to like hit on marks just on purpose so that it'll get treats so they're not allowed to have treats which is sad but they get to like roll around in the dirt and have a great time I also learned something that I didn't know. I guess, I don't know if someone told me this when I was young or if I just came up with it on my own somehow, but I thought that bloodhounds were named bloodhounds because they tracked things, like they caught a scent of something, but they're actually named bloodhounds because their names used to be blooded hounds because they were owned by royalty. Hmm. And I did not know that. I was like, huh. And then I, and then I spent a long time trying to figure out like why or where I learned that they were named bloodhounds because they were tracking dogs, but I don't know. That was something new that I learned. Billman also discusses the economic differences, which affect, you know, every aspect of everyone's life. Uh, it depends on, like, where you go missing. You know, if that area is a wealthy area of the country, they will spend more looking for you than if it's a poor area of the country. If you go missing and your family is wealthy, obviously they have more resources to use to hire more tracking dogs and, you know, helicopters. So that also depends on whether someone is found 
Like I said, Randy Scott is very well off. He also, Billman also talks about Steve Fawcett, who was a very wealthy businessman who went missing while he was flying his plane. And it was the largest search and rescue ever. Like they spent like $1.6 million in government money. And like the family also spent over a million dollars looking for him. He was eventually found. He was not, his plane had crashed. It was not good. But, you know, so like it depends on where you go missing. Basically, I was never planning to go walking in the woods by myself, you know, but I'm definitely like not doing it after reading this book. (laughs) It's just, it's, I mean, because it's scary. Like you never know. You never know what's going to happen. I mean, you can say that about any place, but your chances of going missing in the woods are not as great if you stay home. So this was just, it was just so fascinating. It's very sad. Like, obviously it's very sad, but really interesting read. It's The Cold Vanish, Seeking the Missing in North America's Wildlands by John Billman. I had that on my list to read and I didn't get to it. So I'm so glad that you did and talked about it because now I need to read it. Yeah, it's good. My uh, first pick is Into the Streets, A Young Person's Visual History of Protest in the United States by Mark Bischke. And this book's publication has shifted twice now from like what we were talking about before. It was supposed to come out in March or April. It got moved to like September and then they moved it to July 7th. And I am so worried it's going to get lost in the shuffle, which tends to happen with YA nonfiction anyway. But I will say whether or not you're a teenager, this is a really vital reading for right now. It is a glossy, full-colored book that looks at the history of protests in the United States. And it's super accessible and the kind of book that you can pick up and read straight through. Though um, I will say as I tried to do that, So much of it was so heavy, I ended up not being able to do that. But it's also the kind of book you could, like I did, pick up and set down. And each of the protests in the book covers about three to five pages with a lot of pictures and sidebars to add more context to the protests being talked about. So some of the earlier revolutions at the beginning of American colonial history aren't presented with as much depth as the ones that come later in the book. So know that going in. But also know that the book doesn't offer apology for colonization, nor does it offer any easy explanations for how white Europeans stole land from the natives who have always lived here. And it was really pleasant to see so many native protests included in this book. I, for one, had never heard anything about the occupation of Alcatraz, and it made me angry for how little history classes have taught me about native history. And I'm really hoping that books like this one will bring these sorts of stories more to classrooms and to students of current American history. I um, thought that the context that was given here was really great, and it was not afraid to really condemn the people who deserved being condemned. So, for example, the KKK and the eruption of white male rage with Charlottesville, those are not handled particularly kindly toward the the protesters. It's a really refreshing read and it doesn't try to apologize nor explain away the reasons for the protest as just history. It's about presenting the wrong side of history as just that, the wrong side of history. One of the sections that stood out most to me was the section on the 20 or 2003 Iraq protests. I don't really remember those despite being 18 at that time and 
the age of so many of the protesters. But one of the things that came up that was fascinating and so eye-opening to me was that this is when police became so heavily militarized. And it was a lot of food for thought, especially given the following protests in the book and how violent those turned. And it wasn't because of the protesters necessarily. This is a must read, but no going in. It's not going to tell you everything you'll want to know. It's going instead to give you sort of a sampling of the protests that have occurred historically throughout America. And it doesn't always get into some of the issues that sort of deserved a little bit more digging. So like example, for the Occupy movement, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about the privilege of the folks who could take part in the Occupy movement. But it's a visual primer and the pictures and the sidebars, like the extra stuff you get, were just so good. This country, America, was founded on protesting and Bishke's book is such a powerful jumping off point for more reading and learning about that throughout American history. And especially right now as we're in the midst of so much protest, it is timely and timeless and just a reminder that this is not new. That is Into the Streets, A Young Person's Visual History of Protests in the United States by Mark Bishke. I too had that reaction when I first read about Alcatraz in um, Tommy Orange's There There novel. Mm-hmm. I had to stop and be like, is that a is that a real thing that happened? Like I had yeah. never I had never heard about that. And like I I had good I, I mean good for you know white American history. Mine was pretty decent, and I think about all the things that I didn't learn. And when I have to pause and get like mad about not learning these things, you know, it's like yeah. Books like this one are such a great opportunity to then be like, all right, I need to read 5 billion more things about this event that I knew nothing about before I read it in in this book. Well, speaking about places and events in history that we didn't really <laughs> learn about correctly, um, my next pick takes place in Hawaii. It's called The Color of Air by Gail Sukiyama. This is my first novel that I'm reading by her. I think this is her ninth. And I know she's highly respected and everyone loves her books. I don't know why I haven't read one yet. But this one is fantastic. It's historical fiction set in the early 20th century in Hawaii. It basically takes place between two time periods. And it's based. the story is based around the return of a favorite son. There is a man named Daniel. He is from Hawaii. He has moved to the mainland. He works as a doctor in Chicago, and he is returning home. And people on the island are excited for his return. They are getting ready for to have, like, a big party for when he gets there, making signs, cooking lots of food. Um, one of the people who is looking forward to his return is a man named Koji, who Daniel calls Uncle Koji. Uh, Koji is a legendary sugarcane cutter who moved to Hawaii from Japan when he was 10 years old. He works in the field. And he was in love with Daniel's mother, Mariko, uh, and just kind of like held this this like flame for her um, and has always thought of Daniel like a son. Daniel's mother, Mariko, died from cancer a couple years before Daniel's return. But we get to learn a lot about her, you know, in the past. There's also Nori, who loves also loves Daniel like a son. Mariko was her best friend and Nori has her own children and she runs a fish market with her husband. Her sons have grown up to take over the the fish market, um, and she's looking forward to his arrival. But his return 
while it stirs up lots of emotions in everyone, there is actually seismic activity. There is a volcano stirring the Mauna Loa volcano. This is like 1935. And now it's threatening to erupt and cover the island. And it's just, it's a really beautiful novel about 35 years of friends and family and secrets and shattered dreams and the limited choices for women and the limited choices for immigrants. Uh, These sugar plantations had people from Japan, China, the Philippines, all working there. They were exploited and treated horribly. That's a story that you don't hear a lot about. It's also, you have to remember, like, this is 1935 at the end of the story, and Hawaii wasn't even a state yet, like, when you think about that. And when we were just mentioning history, you're not taught. You know, in school, they were like, yeah, and then Hawaii became a state, and it was awesome, and they don't teach you, like, they didn't want to be a state. The queen didn't want to be a state. Like, they fought it the whole time, and we were just like, nah, you're a state. You're a state now. You know, it's it's amazing what they don't teach you in school. I mean, maybe they teach that now, but, you know, I'm going to be 44 in a couple weeks, so definitely didn't learn it then. But beautiful novel. I look forward to reading some more books by her. This is The Color of Air by Gail Sukiyama. And I said the title right. I keep calling it The Color of Rain. I have no idea why. (laughs) I've said it like five times. When I'm looking it up online, I'm like, why can't I find this book? I'm like, oh, it's The Color of Air. It's The Color of Air. (laughs) My next pick is The Voting Booth by Brandy Colbert. And I will start by saying Brandy Colbert cannot write a book I will not love. And that's just a fact. Her latest YA book, which is her second book this year, is a total winner from start to finish. It tackles really hard, heavy themes while also being a really swoony romance. So it's told in two voices. There's Marva, who is a bit uptight and controlling and loves to live by the rules. She is beyond excited because she gets to vote in her first election when the story starts. Uh, I should mention the story is told over the course of a day. So the second character, Duke, is a little bit more easygoing, but he is dealing with this tremendous loss in his life and struggles with the reality of being mixed race. His mother is white and his father is black. So when Marva goes to the voting booth to cast her vote, and she sees that Duke is having some challenges doing the same thing, he is not showing up on the precinct rolls, Marva decides she's going to step in, and together they spend a day getting to know one another while also working toward getting Duke's vote cast and helping to eliminate barriers to the election for the people in their community. This is a fast-paced, delightful, and super socially conscious read that's by turns spot on in addressing the realities of how hard it can be to vote in an election while also being sweet and swoony in the budding romance between Marva and Duke. So Marva's hard exterior starts to break down a little bit around Duke, And as readers become aware, she's not as hard as she likes to think she is. She has a social media account. This is like my favorite thing in the book. She has a social media account dedicated to her cat, who is named Eartha Kitty, which is the best. Duke has lost his brother due to his brother's activism. And Duke's younger sister, Ida, has been arrested for her own. His parents are really nervous and worried for him, but he knows that he does need to step up and and speak out for his rights as well as the rights of other people. And it's Marva who helps him understand the importance of what he chooses to do. There is so much in this book about activism that will appeal to readers who are young as well as not so young readers. 
I loved how Marva and Duke discovered that small things really do add up to big things. And it's not just voting, though that obviously is central to the story. It's also about helping people get to the polls, helping ensure people are still actively registered, and so much more. And of course, these are all things happening on a micro level that is easy for young people to take notice of and get involved in. And also, did I mention that the romance is pretty great here? I loved it. This was just such a wonderful read start to finish. And that is The Voting Booth by Brandy Colbert. So two things. One, I had my microphone muted because I was getting a drink, but I would definitely have cheered for Eartha Kitty at the time. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I was like, I I was waiting for you and I was like, okay, she must be muted. (laughs) I was too late. I was, I had muted the microphone. And the other thing is apparently because we're going to keep going back to history that we are not taught. (laughs) They just announced yesterday that Brandy has a book coming out next year in time for the 100th anniversary marking the Tulsa Massacre. She's writing a YA novel, which is something that I first learned about two years ago in a memoir called Air Traffic. Uh, And I have not watched the new Watchmen show yet, which I guess deals with it, but it's a part of history that no one has talked about up until now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm I'm very interested in reading her book and, and like reading like a general nonfiction book about it, which I still haven't found. Um, hopefully there'll oh. be a new one coming out. Hers is nonfiction. Oh, hers is nonfiction. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was a novel. Wait, Mm-mm. even better. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's gonna be so good. I'm so excited. Like I said, she has not written a book that I haven't been head over heels for, and I suspect she's going to just absolutely like add something essential to the YA world and I think to the broader reading world more widely because like you said there just aren't a whole lot of books out there about these gigantic pieces of history that we are not we I say we primarily white people are not taught yeah yeah and I just not to keep going on about it but I just want to point out to you that if you hear people referring to it as the Tulsa riots that is incorrect it is the Tulsa massacre it was only called the riots so that insurance companies did not have to reimburse black people for their lost property so refer to it as what it was which was the Tulsa massacre yes so my next pick for something completely different now <laughs> I'm very excited about this novel I read it a long time ago I'm a big fan of the author it is Want by Lynn Steger Strong she wrote a novel, of course, the title now is Escaping Me, a couple years ago that I loved. And I think this one is even more excellent. It's about a woman named Elizabeth. She's 34. She lives in New York City with her family. Uh, she has two sons and a husband. And she works as a teacher at a school for underprivileged kids. A lot of the teachers who work there, too, are also you know, barely scraping by. And her husband used to work in finance, but then with the stock market crash of 2008, things have not gone well for him. So he stays home and watches the kids while she works. And despite having two college degrees and working all the time, they are filing for bankruptcy. And as her world sort of crumbles around her and she thinks about, like, how did she get here? How did she decide this is what she wanted? She thinks about her friend Sasha from when she was a teenager. Sasha was beautiful and magnetic, and they were the best of friends, and Elizabeth just thought the world of her. They were thick as thieves, and they haven't talked in a very long time. She kind of stalks her on Facebook. She doesn't get to see her account, but she can see, like, from other people's accounts, like, she's included in pictures every once in a while. She knows that Sasha is still around. 
Elizabeth's parents were very wealthy. She grew up in Florida, but her parents were not very kind. Um, and so she left for New York City uh, to get away from all that. She went to Columbia. She got two degrees. Um, and now this is where her life is. If you like books by Rufy Thorpe or Julie Bunton or Jenny Offal, I think this is an excellent comparison. It's a fantastic examination of the lives of young women and women and the expectations that are placed on them and the expectations that they place on themselves and the ways that they succeed and fail and how they try to have it all when they're told that they should be able to have it all. You know, she's wondering, like, how is she not fulfilled with a family and degrees and, you know, a place in, like, the biggest city in the world? And it also looks at the realities of privilege and also what it means to exist in America now, you know, working two jobs and still not being able to get by. I just thought it was so excellent. It's a fantastic contemporary novel, and I loved it. It's called Want by Lynn Steger Strong. And now we're going to hear from a sponsor. Okay, Kelly, what do you have for us? This next one I am so excited to talk about. It is The Sirens of Mars, Searching for Life on Another World by Sarah Stewart Johnson. So the book starts because it was seeing a woman talking about her work researching life on Mars that inspired Johnson, the author, to pursue, pursue a similar career in astronomy. And it was seeing a woman writer's name that led me to pick up this book for the same reason. As the book explores so much of planetary science has been done by men and specifically white men, so seeing a woman writing about it in an approachable, non-scholarly manner was notable for me, and it totally delivered. Before I kind of dig into the book a little bit, uh, some backstory. I love cryptozoology. It is one, like, one of my favorite books of all time is called The Ghost with Trembling Wings by Scott Wiedensall. And it was one of the first books I read that made science approachable for me as a non-science person. I had never loved science in school. I never found it to be approachable or something I could comprehend. But that book, which is about the search for animals that have gone extinct, led me down a path of really loving science writing. A big reason was the topic. It's scientific, it's scientific rather, and philosophical. Like, why are humans obsessed with seeking out signs of species that have disappeared? And what is there in the quest to prove life still exists that is so compelling? Which, that is all to say, that is the premise and underlying theme of The Sirens of Mars. But this book explores the history of science as it relates to our understanding of our closest planetary neighbor, Mars. It's chronological from about the 1950s until now. But it goes much farther back than that, digging into what makes seeking out life in worlds outside of our own so captivating, as well as the where's, why's, and how's of the beliefs people had throughout time about space. Woven into the history and major players in Mars exploration is Johnson's own memoir of growing fond of this research. And I think this is what had me so captivated by the book. It's It's got a lot of heavy research, but it's coupled with the real human aspect of why. Why are scientists and the average person obsessed with the idea of life on Mars? What does life mean anyway? And what is life if it's not necessarily something we want life to be? The book explores beliefs ranging from those of Percival Loyal, who believed a utopian society existed on Mars, 
to Carl Sagan and the research he did and ultimate disappointment he and others felt when his theories didn't align with what physical evidence was found until after his death to researchers like Adui and Dolphus who conducted astronomical research with stratospheric balloons. So Johnson parallels this research with the work that she and other scientists are doing here on Earth in some of the most remote and inhospitable places. So places like the Dry Valley of Antarctica and the salt flats of Western Australia. And that discussion reminded me a lot about the otherworldliness of places like White Sands in New Mexico and the gypsum uh, dunes there. So it's fascinating, like how many parallels there were to this research of Mars with what's on our very own planet. So we tend to believe that it's water that proves life, but no water has ever been found on Mars, at least not the kind of water we know on Earth. And it's entirely possible that water does exist there, but in a different form. And it's possible that water is maybe not the standard sign of life either. This is a, a personal book as much as it's a universal book. And it was such a thought-provoking look at what life is and what life may not be. Johnson, from what I gathered in the book, believes we've found life on Mars, but because it's not what we here on Earth seem to think life looks like, it's really a hard sell for people to understand that. And for me, that's what's at the heart of the book. Like, what are the lines between scientific evidence and human belief? And what is it that makes some things easy to understand and others easy to dismiss? So this is a book for readers who love science and space and philosophy mix really smartly with memoir, which is my favorite kind of nonfiction. And that is The Sirens of Mars, Searching for Life on Another World by Sarah Stewart Johnson. Okay, two things, because that's what <laughs> I'm going to do after you talk now. One, I like when you said that maybe water exists in a different form, because now I hope that water exists on Mars in the form of kittens. That would be exciting. <laughs> uh, but also, I'm excited to hear that you are interested in cryptozoology, because did you know that we have the world's only cryptozoology museum here in Maine? What? Yeah, in Portland, Maine. I have been to it. It claims to be the only cryptozoology museum in the world. I have been to it. Colin Dickey has a book coming out in a couple weeks. Yes, yes. Called The Unidentified, which is about all kinds of different things. I can't wait for it. Um, I'm going to just say the title here for everybody. The Unidentified Mythical Monsters, Alien Encounters, and Our Obsession with the Unexplained by Colin Dickey. And he went to this museum to research his, for like research for his book. And he said, do you want to go? And I said, yes. Oh, man. And <laughs> I won't say that it, you know, changed my mind about any of this stuff, but it's something to see, like, if you're interested. And also, I wanted to tell you that I am in the middle of reading The Hollow Places by T. Kingfisher which is about a young woman who gets divorced and she needs a place to stay. So her uncle asks her to run his like weird, like sort of cryptozoology museum. Basically, it's full of all kinds of weird stuff like that. It's, it's like it's like Gravity Falls, basically, like that kind of, you know, mystery shack. And um, it's really fun. So there you go. All kinds of weird things. It's just it's just funny. Like I have this experience and I'm sure you do, too, when you read a book and suddenly you're like, now I know exactly why books like this are so appealing to me. Like I can pinpoint what it was that like turned me on to this kind of reading. Like, why do I like narrative science nonfiction? Oh, it's because I read this one book one time that made it accessible and got me thinking about cryptozoology and 
how does that have to do with Mars? But it's like, you read them and you're like, it has everything to do with it, even if it's not using the same language to describe it. Yeah. I, myself, I have a preference for books about uh, redheads who dye their hair blonde who find lots and lots and lots of money just laying around <laughs> their house. <laughs> I like those. <laughs> so my last pick is one of those books that I'm not going to really tell you anything about because it would just ruin everything. I don't know if Kelly got to read this one yet, but it is Burn Our Bodies Down by Rory Power. Did you get to read this yet, Kelly? I did not oh. because, and this is going to be an unpopular opinion. I didn't care for her first book. <gasps> I really liked it. I get who would like it, but it was not for me. Yeah. Well, I myself loved it. <laughs> her first book was The Wilder Girls, which was a YA horror play weird book. And this one is just flat out hit the ground running YA horror. It's about a girl named Margot. She's 17. She lives alone with her mother. It's always just been her and her mother. Her mother had, it's like Carrie's mother level dysfunction between these two. Her mother has all kinds of issues and she's had, Margot has had a very hard life. She's never known anything about her family. Her mother won't tell her anything about where she's from or like, you know, her family, nothing. So one day Margot finds out that she has a grandmother who lives in the town of Feline and decides... She's going to go see her because why not? Like, what? She's going to hang around the house with her mom who's awful to her? No. So she travels to this town. And when she gets there, her grandmother's house is on fire. And they think that Margot said it because when the police arrive and when all the emergency vehicles arrive, she's the one standing outside. So immediately she's, she's gone to this town and now she's been taken in for starting a fire. And her grandmother shows up and rescues her and says, don't be silly. She didn't set this fire. But I'm not going to tell you how the fire was set. I'm not going to tell you anything else. Basically, that happens after that. Um, but she's going to go stay with her grandma, and it is not going to be normal at all. This is straight out weird. There's scary stuff. There's trigger warnings for body horror, for generational abuse, for gaslighting, character death, child death. It's like the love child of V.C. Andrews and Stephen King. It's the book that I would have wanted to read as a teen. A well-written banana pants horror novel with, written with teens in mind that everyone can read. Well, not if I don't, I wouldn't give it to your little kids, but, um, <laughs> you know, but hey, I mean, they'll be like sneaking it off your shelf. I mean, it pulls no punches, but at the same time, it's also a look at family, forgiveness, the impact of poverty and abuse on young people and adults. Uh, and again, scary, weird, straight out bizarre stuff, which is. My cup of tea. It is Burn Our Bodies Down by Rory Power. You may have sold me on, on trying this one after not being super into the first book she wrote. My last pick and the last pick for the show is Disability Visibility, First Person Stories from the 21st Century, edited by Alice Wong. This came out uh, the 30th of June, but it's such an important book that I wanted to highlight it today. This year, 2020, marks the 30th anniversary of the Americans with Disabilities Act. And you may or may not know that one out of every five Americans is disabled, whether visible or not. And that number is one in four for Black Americans. This collection of essays and poetry is expertly curated and edited by 
disability activist Alice Wong, it's not only timely, but it's vital to understand the realities of disability and disability justice today. The book is broken into four sections, being, becoming, doing, and connecting, and each of the essays digs into something related to the theme at hand, and each piece is tightly written by just the stellar roster of contributors. Some of the names will be familiar and others are going to be brand new, but there is not a single weak essay in this collection. For me, some of the standouts included a piece called The Isolation of Being Deaf in Prison, where Jeremy Woody tells his experiences about being deaf behind bars to Christy Thomas. And it's something that I had never thought about before, despite my own interest with prison justice. Um, In the Becoming section, there were a whole bunch of pieces that just really stood out to me. The first was Haben Girma's piece on how guide dogs aren't leading blind people, but instead are being led by them. And just that simple turn of phrase was so eye-opening for me. I had this incredible opportunity last year to spend time with Dr. Kathy Schneider, who founded and funds the Schneider Family Book Award, for the presentation of the disability experience in children's literature. And she took me to the University of Wisconsin at Eau Claire's campus where there's this statue of a guide dog and it's a representative of her guide dog and talked with me about what it represented for the school as well as for the study, understanding, and humanity of those with disabilities. And Girma's essay was a reminder of how symbols like that can mean so much more than what the general population might think they mean. This section also had a really great piece by Kia Brown about Black disabled joy that reminded me just how fantastic her writing is. Keisha Scott had a piece in this section too about asexuality and how it relates to the disability experience that I think is going to mean so much to queer, especially ace readers. There's a piece by Zipporah Ariel about why more celebrities standing proudly in their disability like Selma Blair would be so huge for disability justice. Some of the other pieces that just like really stood out to me, Eugene Grant wrote about Benjamin Lay, who was an abolitionist dwarf and how much like what a shame it is that people's disabilities don't take up much space in in history texts. He Grant talks about how the only representation he ever saw in pop culture of dwarfism were in pop culture as a means of being a joke or a sidekick rather than as central and a hero. And learning about Benjamin Lay was such an eye-opening experience because he was a dwarf and yet was so powerful in instituting change. There's also a great piece by Essie Smith at the end of the book that explores what it is to see a performance on stage where literally every performer is disabled where there are interpreters for the show and where nearly the entire audience is disabled as well. And then what happens when someone who is able-bodied decides to take the mic and ask a question in that space? These essays will challenge you whether or not you're disabled, and they'll be reminders of just how much work there's still to do in order to make spaces accessible and welcoming to those of all disabilities, visible or not. Uh, The pieces are... A cry to center disabled voices and experiences when it comes to 
change and reform across all sociopolitical arenas, including in otherwise diverse spaces where disability is still not always part of an organization or missions movement. This is necessary reading that is one you could read cover to cover, or like I did, you could pick it up and put it down to really think about what each of the pieces says individually, and then what they say as a collective. We don't have enough books on our shelves about disability from disabled voices, and this is such a crucial addition to the small, but I think growing, and I hope will continue growing, uh, shelves. That's Disability Visibility, First Person Stories from the 21st Century, edited by Alice Wong. Whew, what a group of books today. Yes. An amazing selection. So those are our new books. What are you going to read next? I just started a book called My Eyes Are Up Here by Laura Zimmerman. And it's about a high school sophomore who has very, very, very big boobs. And 75 pages in, I have literally laughed on every page. Oh, that's awesome because I also have a copy of that that I was like, yes, I would like to read that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's great. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I am in the middle of reading The Hollow Place by T. Kingfisher. Uh, and then I'm going to read Leave the World Behind by Ruman Alam, which is about a family who Airbnbs a place out in the middle of nowhere on Long Island for like a week to get away from everything. And the people who own the place show up in the middle of the night saying that all of New York City is gone has gone dark and everything is shut down and the world is ending and they don't know what to do like do they believe these people because they can't check everything like are they safe staying there obviously i have not read this so i'm getting this all from the description online <laughs> um but it's it sounds a little bit like the paul tremblay book a couple mm. years ago cabin at the end of the world and you know and i, and I think that ruman alam is great so i'm excited to read that and that is it for books today all kinds of books History we didn't learn, Bigfoot, all kinds of exciting talks today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now we need to do history we haven't learned about Bigfoot. Did you know that Angela Lansbury is his godmother? No, I don't know. I'm just making stuff up. Uh, Anyway. Did you know his favorite tea is Earl Grey? (laughs) Because it smells like Fruit Loops. Uh, So thank you to our sponsors. You can drop us a line at all the books at bookriot.com. If you want to find us online, we hang out on Instagram. Kelly is Hey Kelly Jensen, and I am Franzen Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating or review. It helps other book lovers to find us. As much as we would love to talk more about Bigfoot today, we just don't have the time. But you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And in the meantime, happy reading. Happy reading. Happy reading.